<laughs> hey, what's up, gathering? Man, it is awesome to be here with you guys. I have been so very excited and looking forward to this for quite some time. I feel so very honored to be a part of the encounter and what's going on and what's going to be happening for the next uh, several evenings. And uh, I, I just know this is, man, God has set you guys up for some powerful nights. You've got a, a heavy hitters that are coming in to minister. Our executive pastor, Pastor Terry Furr, is going to be here tomorrow night. And I'll tell you what, man, some of you ladies have heard from Pastor Terry before. You're in for a great treat. But, man, what an honor. What a joy it is to be here. And I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm so sorry that you don't like Alabama football. But we're going to pray that you get saved tonight. Thank you, Jesus. Wow, listen, I, I, I feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. Like I just don't know where to start. Seriously, I, I just don't even know where to begin because I feel such, I, I feel such joy being here. I feel so honored. I absolutely love and highly respect your pastors. I think they are some of the greatest pastors, and I'm not just saying this because I'm up here, but really in this day and age and in the American culture and in the American church, finding people and finding pastors who are authentic is more rare than you would, could imagine. And I love the fact that your pastors are the real deal. And how many of you are thankful that you are pastored by authentic pastors? Come on. I love them. I love the fact that uh, and feel so honored that they've asked me to be one of the overseers of the gathering. And I'm so thankful for that. I believe in what's happening here. And uh, I'm very excited about the fact that God has put you here in Albemarle. You're making a difference already. So excited about your new building. I got to see it several months ago. My wife and I came over, got to spend some time with your pastors, with some of your leaders, and, and walk through the building and just dream with them. And I, I, I'm going to get to see it again before I go. I can't wait to come back and be in one of the services there uh, in your new building. It's coming soon. You guys just... Stay in faith, stay faithful, keep believing. It's going to happen, it's going to happen soon. And how many of you know when it does, God's about to blow this place up. Come on, can I get an amen? amen. Praise God. You know, I, I, I'm a little intimidated by your pastor. I've got to just be honest with you. I mean, the fact that the man ran 50 miles on his 50th birthday I mean, can we just say beast mode? I mean, 50, listen, I don't think I'll run 50 miles this year. He ran 50 miles in one day. That man's a beast. So I'm a little intimidated by that. I just got to be honest with you. Yeah, it's a little intimidated. It is an honor to be here. I brought some guys with me. We have a ministry school at the Refuge, a discipleship school. lasts for nine months called RDS, Refuge Discipleship School. And they came over to hang out with us tonight. And I'm going to ask our director 
of uh, RDS, Pastor Abe Ortega, if he would, just to come for a moment. I want him just to share a little bit about RDS. They've got a booth over here. Pastor Abe, tell us what RDS is all about, would you? Good evening. How's everybody doing? We are so excited to be here with you guys tonight. I brought some Jesus-loving students with me. Students, where you guys at? Make some noise. We're stoked to be here with you guys tonight. The Refuge Discipleship School was established in 2014 with the intention to train up, train up next generational leaders. It's for those that have graduated high school, maybe those that have been out of high school for a while that really don't know what they're called to do in life or what their purpose is. And so what we desire is to create an environment where students come, give nine months of their life to be intensely discipled, basically to just really be poured into with ministry training, life experience. And how many of you guys know that when you lay yourself down, when you give everything to the Lord, revelation will come from him of what you're called to do. Purpose will be revealed in your life. And so we're excited about having the opportunity to do that with nine months for nine months with these incredible students that come in. So, like Pastor Jay said, we brought our booth. We have some merch over there. Come see us. We have a selfie booth. We just want to connect with you guys, get to know with you guys, and so excited about what the Lord is going to do here. We're so excited. We're expecting. God bless you guys. Amen. Thank you. They have brochures and all of that. Harvard did a study, and it showed that uh, students who come out of high school who take a gap year, they have a gap year experience before they go into the university system or into a college system, that they are much better students. They, are, they, they do much better in school. And so RDS is kind of a gap year experience. It lays a foundation for the rest of your life. For whatever you're going to do, you're uh, just... Uh, intensely engrossed in the Word of God, in prayer, in practical ministry for nine months of your life. And I believe it will help you to be better engineers. It will help you to be better wives and husbands. It will help you to be better followers of Christ for the rest of your life. If you want information about that, it's all over there at the display. You can pick uh, that up uh, before you go this evening. Man, when I found out uh, just a few moments ago that today marks the six-year anniversary of the gathering. Uh, my heart just leapt. I was so excited to be a part of this celebration, and what a great milestone that it is. We planted a church 13 years ago called The Refuge. We understand the sacrifices that it takes. We know how hard that is. I commend your pastors. I commend you for the hard work and the dedication that it's taken to build what you've built and, and allow God to do what he's done through you. Do you realize that 90% of church plants fail in the first year? 90%, 9 out of 10 church plants don't make it beyond the first year. And of those that do, 50% of those that make it past the first year fail in the second year. You have something to celebrate tonight in the fact that you've made it six years. And how many of you know the best is yet to come for the gathering? I believe that with all of my heart. And I know God has great plans for you, and I hope that you're ready for what God is going to do over these next few nights. I'm telling you, this is a divine setup of the Lord. He's going to do so many great things in you. I, I want to share some things with you this evening. If you're a note taker, I want you to write some things down. We're going to be taking a look at a story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 in a few moments. 
And I want to talk a little bit about the life of David. And we're going to examine one of the mistakes that David made that so many people are familiar with. A mistake that David made that's been talked about for many, many years. And Here's the great thing. Here's the thing I want you to understand. And it's this, that David was not defined by his mistake. And there are many of us in this room that have made mistakes. In fact, two things that we all have in common are this. Number one, we've all made mistakes. Come on, be honest. If you've made a mistake, wave at me out there. Come on. You've made a mistake. That's all of us. And number two, we've all felt shame. Every single person that's here, at some point in their life, you've felt shame. And I want to talk about that tonight because I am sick and tired of the enemy paralyzing and immobilizing people through shame. That they never become who God created for them to become and they never accomplish what He uh, created them to accomplish because they're paralyzed and immobilized by shame. Or the story of a man who had bought a brand new car. He bought a Corvette and he was so excited about it. It was in his retirement years and and he, and he took the Corvette out on the Interstate I-85, and he just wanted to see what it would do. And so he punched the gas, and he was at 90 miles an hour, just, just like that. That felt really good. Listen, I got to drive a NASCAR around Charlotte Motor Speedway several years ago. I hit 150 miles per hour on the back stretch. And let me just tell you, it felt good. So he punches a little more, he hits 110 miles an hour, he's really digging this, he goes up to 120, he gets up to 130 miles an hour when he sees the blue lights of a state trooper behind him. So he pulls over on the side of the inter interstate, the state trooper walks up to him and says, Sir, listen, it's Friday afternoon, he said, I've got 15 minutes left on my shift. He said, if you can give me a good reason that I've never heard before as to why you need to be going 130 miles an hour, I'll let you go. And the man said, well, officer, he said, after 32 years of marriage, he said, three years ago, my wife left me for a state trooper. And I thought that you were trying to bring her back. And the officer said, have a nice day, sir. Now listen to me, I want to give you some good reasons tonight that you need to overcome shame. I want to give you good reasons tonight that you need to declare war on shame. In fact, I would love to see the gathering become a no-shame zone. Come on, anybody with me on that? And I love the grace of God. And I'm thankful that He's a God of grace. I'm thankful that He's a God of second chances. Anybody with me? and third chances, and fourth chances, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh, and eighth. But listen to me, the grace of God is not a license for you to continue sinning. The grace of God is empowerment and the enablement of God for you to live a righteous life. I'm grateful that churches like the gathering are places of grace where mistakes are rubbed out and they're not rubbed in. I'm thankful for that. But God never intended for His grace to be a license for you to live any way that you want to live. His grace empowers you to live the way that He designed for you to live. 
And for some reason, there's been a culture that's been created in the church, especially in the American church, where so many people feel such shame because of the mistakes of the past that they don't feel like they can be a part of a place like this. There's people all over Albemarle that might not ever darken the doors, not because they don't think you're good people, not because they don't think you're friendly people, but because of the mistakes that they've made in the past, and they feel such shame that they think, I can never be a part of them. They've disqualified themselves. David is one of my favorite biblical characters. I love to read about David. I love to study his life. David was a man's man. David was a, a lady's man, a woman's man. I don't mean that in the wrong way. He, he, the Bible says he was handsome. David was a Renaissance man before the Renaissance era. He was just a full package. I mean, David was a shepherd. David was a warrior. David was a giant killer. David was a builder. He was a military strategist. David was a poet. He was a songwriter. He was a musician. David was a son. He was a father. David was a king. David was this, this great leader. But he failed miserably. You realize that the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. The Bible doesn't describe anybody else in using that phrase. And, and the Bible doesn't use it about David once. It uses it about David twice. A man after God's own heart, yet David failed miserably. If you've got your Bibles or a device, 2 Samuel chapter 11, you there? We're going to begin to read in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Beginning to read in verse 1, and I'm just going to ask you, gathering if you would, uh, this is something that we do every weekend at the Refuge, but would you just stand to honor the greatest book on the planet as I read the Bible tonight? Would you do that? It says there, beginning in verse 1, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Come on, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord would say to us, Holy Spirit, we put out the welcome mat for you right now. We're not ashamed of you. We're not afraid of you. And we say we need you. You're the one who guides us into all truth. So Holy Spirit, come right now and guide us into the truth that will set us free. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. And if you agree, come on, just shout amen across this place. Would you do it? Amen. You can be seated. Now, if you happen to go on and read the rest of the story about David, we just read the first four verses. David sees Bathsheba, sins for her, sleeps with her. And if you continue to read the story, you discover that through this sexual encounter, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And then all of a sudden, David is trying to do damage control. And David is trying to figure out how he can cover his tracks because Bathsheba is a married woman. Her husband is fighting on the front lines for Israel. And so David sends for Uriah, her husband, and, and, and brings him back from the front lines, and he meets with Uriah, and he says to Uriah, Uriah, man, you are the man. High five, bam. You're the man, Uriah. You're fighting for Israel. Thank you for what you're doing for our country. But Uriah, listen, you need a break, bro. You need some R&R. Listen, Uriah, I've got a little gift basket for you. Dinner's on the king tonight. Dinner's on me. Listen, take your wife to a nice dinner. Spend some time with your wife. And hey, Uriah, in the gift basket, there's some candles. Spend some time with Bathsheba. Look, you deserve it, bro. You've been working hard. You've served our nation. I want you to have about five days of R&R with Bathsheba. Uriah says, king, Oh, thanks. But I could never even think of doing such a thing while my men are up fighting on the front lines. And the Bible says that Uriah sleeps outside of his home, outside of the door, because he did not want to dishonor the men that he was fighting with. And David is like, man, I thought I had this figured out. I thought this was a great plan. Uriah was going to go sleep with Bathsheba, and then everybody would think that the child is Uriah's. So he calls Uriah back in, he prepares a great feast, and his plan is, I'm going to get Uriah drunk, and then he'll go sleep with Bathsheba, and that's what he does. He gets him drunk, Uriah, hey man, Bathsheba, she's looking, she's looking good, dude, why don't you go hang out with your wife, spend some time with your wife, and Uriah refuses. He says, I'm not going to do it while I'm fighting for the nation. And so David sends him back to the front lines. But before he goes, David says, hey, listen, Uriah, I've got a letter that I need for you to take to Joab, the commander of the army. If you will, just, it's got the official king's seal. Just take this and give it to Joab. And Uriah had no idea that he was carrying with him his own death sentence. So he goes back to the front lines. He hands the letter to Joab. Joab breaks the seal, opens the letter, reads the instructions from the king, and the instructions were this. Put Uriah out at the fiercest, most intense part of the battle and then have all the troops withdraw and leave Uriah there by himself. And that's exactly what Joab did, and Uriah was killed. Word came back to the palace, came back to King David. Uriah has died in battle, and David says, Oh, so, so sad, so sorry to hear that. That is such a tragedy, but thus is war. That's just the way war is. And then the Bible says that David sends for Bathsheba, 
and he marries her, and, and, and he thinks now, I've covered my tracks, and it's okay because now I have married Bathsheba. I want you to notice, if you've got your Bible there, the last words of 2 Samuel chapter 11. The final words, the way the chapter ends. Listen, this is what it says. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. And the question that comes to my mind, when we think about a man that is described as a man after God's own heart, not once, but two different times, the question that comes to my mind is, how did David end up at a place like this? How did David fail so miserably? How did David end up in a place where he's covered over with shame and where he is spiraling out of control? And the answer is this. The same way that you and I end up at a place of sin and failure. It's what I call the progression of the sin trap. The progression of the sin trap. This is, this is what it looks like. Number one, if you're taking notes, we ask somebody else to do what only we are meant to do. Look what the Bible says, verse 1. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Did you notice that? Maybe you missed it the first time we read it, but look look what it says. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. David asked others to do what only he was meant to do. It's in the handbook. It's the training that kings go through. Like when the springtime rolls around, every king knows this is when I go to battle. This is when I go out to war. But David says, you know what, I don't think I'm going to go this time. I'm going to turn it over to some others and I'm going to ask them to do what only I was meant to do. And what happens at times in our lives is we do the same thing. We ask other people to do what only we are meant to do. We know we're supposed to spend time with the Lord, but yet we say, well, Pastor Paul will do it for me. And I'll just show up on Sunday, and I know he's going to have been with the Lord, even if he preach about, preaches about Wonder Bras. <laughs> and if you're a guest here tonight, inside joke, I'm totally sorry, but I was wrestling over what I was to preach before I came, I had a different direction I was going to go. Early this morning, the Lord changed the direction. And then when I found out that your pastor preached on Wonder Bras this morning, I thought, I can preach anything I want. <laughs> I'm, I, like, I'm good. We know that we're supposed to worship. But yet sometimes we, we pass that off on the worship team. And we say, well, you know what? It's been a crazy week. It's been a busy week. And I know that the worship team is going to lead us into the presence of God. We know that we're consistently supposed to be in the Word of God, but yet we relegate that to somebody else. And we say, well, I've got teachers, I've got pastors that will do that for me. And it begins this progression that I call the progression of the sin trap, and it leads us to the second thing. And the second thing is this, that we then begin to feel entitled and justified. We begin to feel entitled and justified. 
that slow drift away from the standards of the Word of God. And all of a sudden, David, there when he should have been out to war in the springtime, but yet he's hanging out at the palace. And the Bible says that he's walking around on the rooftop of the palace, gazing out over the city. Wow, the city of Jerusalem is so beautiful. If you've ever been there, it's an absolutely beautiful city. And there's David just admiring the city when all of a sudden he goes, Oh, oh, hello, hey. And he notices this woman that the Bible describes as having unusual beauty. And he inquires about her. And he finds out she's Eliab's daughter, but... More importantly, she's Uriah's wife. But something on the inside of David said, you know what? I deserve this. Something on the inside said, well, I'm the king. I'm entitled to have whatever it is that I want to have. He justified, even though knowing she was a married woman, that David in his mind justified it. Why? Because of the progression of the sin trap where we relegate what we're supposed to do to somebody else and then all of a sudden we start feeling entitled and we begin doing things like this. We say, well, I wouldn't take reams of paper from the office if the boss paid me what I was worth. Because we feel entitled, we feel justified. Well, I I wouldn't shop so much if my husband treated me better. I wouldn't look at pornography if my wife treated me better. I wouldn't party as much as I party if my parents weren't such jerks. Because we feel entitled and justified. The progression of the sin trap. And here's the third thing. This is the progression. Now, this is what it does. Is all of a sudden we begin to sin even more to try to cover the shame that we already feel just spirals out of control. There's David who now has gotten a a woman, a married woman, pregnant. And so now he begins manipulation. He begins lying and he has a man murdered and then he marries a woman that God never intended for him to marry. It's this sin progression of trying trying to cover over the shame that we already feel and we do the same thing because we sin, we feel entitled, we feel justified, we sin, we feel bad. So we sin even more to try to cover over the the shame that we feel and then we feel even worse. So we sin even more and it's just this out of control progression that happens. Out of control. And the enemy loves to paralyze you. He loves to immobilize you with shame to keep you from ever doing what God called you to do and to prevent you from ever becoming what God intended for you to become. Sin and mistakes are the thing that drive us away from the thing that you and I need the most. And it's this, connection. You need connection with God and you need connection with other people. You see, inside of every human being, 7.5 billion human beings on the planet as of April this year, 7.5 billion people in every single person that's alive right now and every person that's ever been born in history is born with an innate desire to connect with God. Every person. And every person is born with an innate desire to connect with other people. And sin and shame drive you away 
from the thing that you need the most. In fact, shame is the thing that unravels our ability to connect. Shame is easily understood as this, fear of disconnection. There's a lady by the name of Brene Brown. She's made a name for herself and made a living by just spending years researching authenticity and shame. Brene Brown says that shame is the thing that unravels our ability to connect. Brene Brown says that shame really is best understood as the fear of disconnection. Because shame says this, if you really knew who I was, and if you really knew all the things that I have done, you would not want to be around me. Shame says if I get real with God, He's going to reject me. He's not going to want to have a relationship with me because I keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's the fear of disconnection. If you really knew who I was, you wouldn't want to hang out with me. Shame says, I am not blank enough. You fill in the blank. I'm not smart enough. I'm not gifted enough, I'm not creative enough, I'm not talented enough, I'm not good looking enough, I'm not wealthy enough. Shame says, I am not blank enough. And our natural tendency is then that we hide our imperfections. We see that from the beginning of time when Adam and Eve blew it. Adam and Eve came into this world, they were born, they were completely uncovered, they were completely naked. It wasn't just physical, it was spiritual. And when they messed up, the very first thing that they did, the Bible says, is that they covered their shame. And our natural tendency because of shame is that we want to hide our imperfections because we're afraid of disconnection. We're afraid that God will reject us or people will will reject us. And so we just slip and digress into this place where we want to cover everything up. And what I want to see happen in the body of Christ is that there are these no-shame zones that are created at places like the refuge and places like the gathering where people can say, man, I messed up, but that's the place I want to go. Like I messed up and I've got some issues, but I know that I can be real with the people at the gathering because it's full of people with issues. I say all the time, if you find the perfect church, don't go because you will mess it up. (laughs) The gathering is not the perfect church, but it is a real church. It's an authentic church. And if we are going to defeat shame, We have to allow ourselves to be seen. We have to take the fig leaf off. We've got to get real. We've got to get authentic. 
We've got to quit trying to cover over our mistakes and cover over our imperfections. That we've got to allow people to see who we really are and trust that we serve a God who loves us for who we are and that we have found people that are authentic enough and real enough that when they find out what we did or when they find out how we blew it this week that they're not going to reject us. Here's the thing. In order for real connection to take place with God, in order for real connection to take place with each other, it requires this thing called vulnerability. And if we're going to be vulnerable, there are three things that have to happen. Number one, you have to have courage. If you're going to be vulnerable, how many of you know that to get real, you, you have to be courageous in order to let people know who you really are. You realize the word courage comes from a Latin root core, which means heart. And the definition of courage in its original language means this, to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. That's what courage means. The second thing that you need in order to be vulnerable is compassion. Compassion, first of all, for yourself. You say, well, that sounds kind of selfish. It's not. Here's the reason why. You can never give away what you don't possess. And you have to see yourself as one who's worthy of God's love, that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you because he said, if you were the only person alive on the planet, I still would have sent Jesus to the cross just for you. That's how crazy he is for you. That's how much he loves you. And you have to receive the compassion and the love of God so that you then can give that to other people. That's what vulnerability is about, saying, God, I'm taking the fig leaf off. I'm receiving your love, and I want to give that same kind of love to others. And then the third thing that happens in vulnerability is connection, and that can only happen through authenticity. Through authenticity. Look what Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Let me read that again. People who conceal their sins, people who insist on keeping the fig leaf on, people who insist on covering everything up, will not prosper. But those who confess their sins, those who are vulnerable, those who are authentic, Those who get real, those who say, man, I've got some issues. I've made some mistakes in my life. I blew it again this week. The Bible says those are the ones that will receive mercy. Now, I know that vulnerability is not easy. It doesn't come natural for us. But it is absolutely essential for you to connect with God and for you to connect with other people. Now, let's go back to David. David's blown it. He's made a big mistake. At the end of chapter 11, says God is displeased with him. He's doing damage control. He's trying to hide everything. He's put fig leaves all over himself. And David's a mess, a man after God's own heart, and he is just a royal mess. God's displeased with him. He's got a woman pregnant that's not his wife that he now marries because he's had her husband murdered. But the beautiful thing is... That's not the end of David's life. 
That's not the end of his story. David is not just known for his mistake. Why? Why is that? Because David reached a place that he had to make a decision. I can stay here. I can stay in this place of shame. I can remain here and continue to repeat the pattern over and over. Or I can move beyond this and not let my mistake define me. And the thing about you and I is that we have to make the same decision. Because we all make mistakes. We agreed on that in the beginning. We all make mistakes. And we've all felt shame. And we have to decide, will I stay here and continue to repeat the pattern and keep sinning so it try, you know, in an effort to cover the shame that I already feel? Or will I allow God to break the shame off of me and move me forward in my relationship with Him? You have to decide that. And some of you have to decide that Tonight, you have to decide, what's it going to be for me? Will I be defined by the mistakes of my past? Will this be the end of my story? Will my children and my grandchildren have to deal with the things that I've been dealing with because I wouldn't deal with it and I wouldn't move on? Or am I going to break this thing for the generations to come? Now, here's the, here's the beautiful thing about this is that from the Bible, from 2 Samuel chapter 12, we find three things that David did in order to move beyond the shame. And that's what I want to share with you. Three things very quickly, and we're going to, we're going to be done. Three things that David did in order to move beyond the shame. The first one is this. David repented and confessed. If you read in chapter 12, there's a man by the name of Nathan, a prophet, who comes to David, and he knows uh, by the Spirit, he knows what's going on, he knows what David has done, and he comes to King David, and he says, Hey, King, got this really cool story I want to share with you. And he begins telling him a story about two men, a rich man and a poor man. This one guy's got all kind of stuff, and he's got sheep, and he's got everything he wants. The poor man doesn't have much, but the rich man goes to the poor man and takes the one sheep that the poor man has for himself. And David's sitting there listening to the story. He said, what a jerk. What a jerk. Guy's got everything he needs. He's going to go take the one man's sheep. That man ought to die. That's what David said. He ought to die. You know. And Nathan's like, David, look me in the eye. David, come here, right here. Look. David, you're that man. Like you're the guy. You, you, the, the rich man who took the one sheep, that's you. Remember Bathsheba? I know what's been going on. And, and like you, you took her. And, and that was you. And David had to make a decision right there. And in chapter 12, uh, beginning to read in verse 13 and 14, listen to what it says. Then David confessed to Nathan. And he says this. I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Listen, sin always has a ripple effect. It doesn't just affect you. You think your habit, you think your partying, you think your greed, you think your pride, you think your anger, your selfishness only affects you. And sin always has a ripple effect. But the bottom line is this. When you sin, you are sinning against God. 
Now, I don't know if you realize it or not, but in the American church, there are a lot of churches and a lot of pastors who won't even use the word sin anymore. You guys with me? You still here? Come on, Gavin. You still here tonight? Come on. You can talk to me a little bit, all right? Listen, the quieter you are, the longer I'm going to preach. We'll go to midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. I mean, I'll just go on forever. But I want you to start talking to me just a little bit. Listen. We need to quit dancing around this issue. And we need to call it what it is. And don't just say, well, you know, I've got some character flaws. I've got some struggles in my life. I mean, we, we, we love to just kind of dance around all of this stuff, and we need to say, you know what? I'm a sinner. Like, I sinned. I messed up. I blew it. And I sinned against God. I sinned against God. And God, I'm sorry, David repented and he confessed. And look what Nathan says to him. Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. Come on, if you're thankful that he forgives us when we make a mistake, somebody just thank him right now. Come on, just say, Lord, thank you for that. Nathan says, you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt, for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. Listen to me, gathering. When, when true repentance takes place, something has to die. Listen, the, the word repentance comes from a Hebrew word which simply means this. It means that you're walking in one direction and you stop and you do a 180 and you start walking in the opposite direction. That's repentance. But oftentimes, here's our understanding of repentance in the American church. We're walking in one direction, and we feel convicted about something that we're doing, and we say, God, I'm sorry for what I'm doing. And then we keep walking in the same direction, and we never change anything about our lifestyle. That's not repentance. Listen, that is just simply sin management. That's not repentance. Repentance says, I made a mistake, I'm convicted, and God, I'm sorry, and I don't want to keep doing this thing, so I'm doing a 180, and I'm going to walk in the opposite direction. That's what real repentance looks like. And David repented, but listen, when you repent, something has to die. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, that those who belong to Christ Jesus have taken their evil desires and their passions and they've nailed them, they've crucified them, they've nailed them to the cross. Like there should be a part of our flesh that dies every time that we repent. That we crucify our flesh, we kill those passions and desires that do not line up with the Word of God. Seven days later, David's son dies. And then in verse 20 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says this. Then David got up from the ground, he washed himself, he put on lotions, watch this, and he changed his clothes. He changed his clothes. David changed his clothes. Why did he do that? Because David knew th th this is a new season. 
like this, I'm moving from one season to another. I've repented, I've confessed, and I've made mistakes. I have failed miserably, but my life is not going to be defined by that. And it's time for me to move on. Like I'm changing clothes. I'm taking off that old stuff, and I'm putting on something new so that I can be who God has created me to be. And when you repent, when you confess, you have to see yourself as one who has been made new. You have to see yourself as one who's uh, worthy of God's love, worthy of the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. Listen, when Joseph, you know the story of Joseph. Go back to Genesis. Joseph had the brothers. He's mistreated by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He's thrown into prison, falsely accused of trying to rape a woman, thrown into prison. And there as he's in the prison, he begins interpreting the dreams of some guys in the prison. And they said, man, dude, you're awesome. And listen, when we get out of here, we're going to mention your name to the king. And then when they got out of prison, they totally forgot about Joseph. And he stays there two more years. And one day, Pharaoh has a disturbing dream. And Pharaoh can't sleep. He calls all the men around him. Somebody please tell me what this means. Nobody can tell him what it means. And then somebody says, hey, you know what, King uh, Pharaoh, there's a, there's a guy, there's a guy we heard about, and, and he's, he's in our prison system, and we've heard that he interprets dreams, and all of a sudden the cupbearer goes, hey, yeah, 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 hey, he did that for me, and I was supposed to tell you about him. I totally forgot. Shoot. But his name is Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 41, the Bible says that Pharaoh sends for Joseph. And in verse 14, it says that Joseph shaves and he changes his clothes. Why did he do that? Because Joseph knew, listen, it's a new season for me. Joseph knew, I'm not coming back to this place anymore. I'm moving on. Like, I'm not going to be defined by this. Like, God's called me to a destiny. God's called me to something greater. And I'm taking off these prison garments. And I'm putting on new clothes. And some of you that have been saved, you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, you need to take off your old clothes. And it's time for you to change clothes. It's time for you to move forward in the things of God. Is anybody with me out there? I love the picture that's painted for us in Luke chapter 15 when a son has failed miserably and he's, he, he is, uh, uh, you know, he's spent all of his money, he ends up in the pig pen, you know the story, and his dad is looking for him, he comes home, he's got nasty clothes, he's got pig slop all over him, and one of the very first things that his dad does is he puts a new robe on his son. What a picture of how our Father treats us. That dad in Luke chapter 15 didn't say, you know what, boy, you've embarrassed me. You've put our family in shame. And listen, you're going to wear those nasty clothes around for the next month because I want you to remember what you did. No, no, the dad said, hey, that's not who you are. He says, get that stuff off of him. And he puts a new robe around his son. And that's what God does for you and I. He said, you're not going to be defined by the mistakes of the past. He says, I want to wrap you in a robe of righteousness. When Lazarus came out of the grave, the first thing that Jesus did was said, take that junk off of him. Take those grave clothes off of him. and Let's dress him the way that he ought to be dressed. And some of you need to change your clothes. Here's the second thing David did to defeat shame. David worshipped. Look what the Bible says. It's there in the second part of verse 20, chapter 12. It says that David went to the temple immediately. 
He put on his clothes, changes his clothes. He goes straight to the temple and he begins worshiping God. Why? Because David knew the importance of setting his face towards the things of heaven. David knew that there was something about worship that was supernatural in the transformation of our spirit. So David goes to the temple. Let me tell you seven things that worship will do for you. I want you to write these things down because worship is a supernatural thing for us. And as you worship him after you change your clothes, it does seven things. Number one, worship sets us in the authority of heaven. Sets us in the authority of heaven. I don't have time to expound on all of these, but let me tell you something. The enemy wants to try to anchor you to the authority of the realm of this earth. And every single day, we need to allow God to set us in the authority of heaven. And the thing, the, the vehicle that will take you there is not Uber, but the thing that will take you there is worship. It's worship. Number two, worship refreshes our spirit. How many of you know that life can cause you to feel heavy? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever been at a place that you were so heavy that you didn't want to worship? Come on, let's get real. Let's get authentic. Come on, wave at me if you've ever been there. Like you did not want to worship. You didn't want to go there. There have been many times in my life, many situations in my family, many situations in planting a church I felt so heavy I didn't want to worship. But I knew in those moments that probably the greatest thing I could do was to worship Him. And as I began to worship Him, all of a sudden my spirit began to be refreshed. Here's the third thing that worship does. Worship reminds us of the goodness of God. Number four, worship opens our hearts to receive His love. Number five, worship puts our enemy at flight. You understand when you worship, it sends confusion to the strategies of the enemy. Supernatural. We find it all through the Word of God. When you worship, it confuses the enemy. It puts your enemy to flight. One can put a thousand to flight. Two can put ten thousand to flight. Listen, we don't worship God to make Him bigger. How many of you know God can't be any bigger than He already is? No. We worship God so that our view of Him becomes bigger. And that's number six. Worship changes your perspective. Changes your perspective so that you see the bigness of God. You understand that He's bigger than the shame. He's bigger than the addiction. He's bigger than the bondage. He's bigger than your past. And number seven, worship changes the atmosphere. You can't control what people around you do, but you can control the atmosphere around you. And when you worship, it changes the atmosphere around you. It changes the atmosphere of your home. Some of you need to turn some stuff off and turn some other stuff on in, in your home. Change the atmosphere of your home. Change the atmosphere of your cubicle. Change the atmosphere of your vehicle on your way to work. Or whenever you're driving around, you can change the atmosphere of your spirit and of your heart through worship. And David understood that. So David worshiped. Here's the third thing. 
David moved forward. He moved forward. David said, you know what, I failed, and I failed miserably. But David changes his clothes. David goes to the temple, and he worships God. And then the Bible says there in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 24, then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and he slept with her. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. And David named him Solomon. The wisest man who has ever lived came out of a season of shame. Out of a season of mistakes. One of the things that I love about God is that He makes beauty out of our ashes. God has a way like nobody else of taking the mistakes of your past and bringing some of the greatest treasures that you'll ever have into your life. David didn't all of a sudden become perfect. He made other mistakes. You can read about them in the Bible. David still suffered the consequences and the pain of his mistakes. But David moved forward. David understood that he had a destiny, something that he was appointed to do by God. Listen, we've all made mistakes. We've all done things that we're not proud of. We've all repeated actions and habits that we so desperately wish that we could break. And the enemy's plan for you is to paralyze you and to immobilize you and to put layer upon layer upon layer of shame on you so that you will not connect with God and you will not connect with other people in life-giving relationships. Because we think God doesn't want to be around this. God doesn't want intimacy with this. God doesn't want fellowship with this. Can I just tell you, God is not afraid of your mess. Do you understand that when God created, everything that He created, He spoke with the exception of one thing. And when it came to creating mankind, God didn't speak. But God stooped down, the Bible says. And he took dirt. Took dirt. Like, man, God, of all the things that you could have picked to to choose to create us, why dirt? I believe it's because of this. That God wants you to know he's already touched the dirtiest parts of your life. He's already touched your mess. And he's not afraid of your mess now. And he wants you to come to him and say, Lord, I take the fig leaf off. I'm taking the prison clothes off. I'm taking the shame of the past off. I want to get real with you, God. I want to be authentic with you because, God, I want to connect with you. It was after Nathan the prophet confronted David. And David repented. But in those moments, David found a quiet place and he took a parchment and a pen. And David began writing the words 
of Psalm 51. I want you to just close your eyes right now. Every person, close your eyes. And I want to read some portions of Psalm 51 over you. With your eyes closed now, I want you to think. Think about David. Think about the mistake that he made. Think about the shame that he felt. David has been confronted by Nathan the prophet and he confesses and repents. He changes his clothes and he finds a place, maybe when he went to the temple to worship, and he takes out a pen and he begins writing these words. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. Purify me, purify me, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now, let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And make me willing to obey you. Make me willing to obey you. Then, then, God. I'll teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Father, thank you that through you and the blood of your Son, Jesus, that we can overcome shame, that the chains that hold us can be broken off of our lives. God, thank you that we can learn from David that there's a road map for us, that we don't have to stay in the place of shame, but we can move beyond that. Father, I pray right now for the people here at the gathering. I pray for those, Lord, who are covered over with shame from the mistakes of the past. Father, I pray that you would speak to them. Holy Spirit, just come and do what you do so well. Convict our hearts, not so that we feel more shame, but so that we can be free of shame. 
Speak to us right now. And I pray that the fig leaves would come off. I pray that we would get vulnerable. God, that we would have the courage to to get real with you. We would put ourselves in a place to receive your great love and compassion. And I pray, God, that tonight there would be connection and reconnection with you. Connection and reconnection with others, God. You've told us in James that if we'll get real with each other, our hearts, our souls will be healed. So, Lord, I pray, I pray that that would happen right now in these moments. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Listen, first of all, I want you to know it was never God's plan that you feel shame. Never. Not one time. He gave to you and I the beautiful person of the Holy Spirit that will convict us when we mess up. But He never wants you to feel shame. It's not God's plan for you to feel shame tonight. And I know some of you have made mistakes in the past. In fact, the Holy Spirit has spoken to me that there's a lady here this evening and you feel so much shame because of an abortion that took place and it was well over a decade ago, but you've never been able to move beyond that. And the Lord wants to heal you of that tonight. Wants to set you free from that tonight. There's a man here that has a severe pornography addiction. The Lord wants to heal you of that tonight. You feel an enormous amount of shame. In fact, it took every bit of courage on your part to even show up tonight, but the Lord wants to heal you. He wants to set you free from that. There's a young person that's here tonight, and you have been in this repeated lie with your parents, and it's led from one thing to another to another, and now you're just trying to do damage control, and you have found yourself in an absolute mess. And the Lord wants to free you from that. He wants to break the shame off of you, but you've got to get real. You've got to be authentic. You've got to have the, the courage to confess and to get real before the Lord. And let me tell you what's going to happen. If you respond to the Lord, there's a mercy that He releases over your life. As Proverbs 28, 13 says, if we conceal our sins, we will not prosper. But if we confess our sins, we will find mercy. Paul said it like this, in view of the mercy of God, understanding how merciful He is, I present myself to you, God. I get real with you. I take the fig leaves off, God. In view of your mercy, God, that I can be real with you tonight. So with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now, and I'm not going to try to unpack that, but you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit And it could be something minor. It could be something major. We're not here to compare sins and to say, well, yeah, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that guy. No. If you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I want you to stand up right now, right where you are. Stand to your feet. You can justify it. You can feel entitled. You can say, well, I'll do it later. Or we've got three other nights of encounter. Or you can say, I'm moving forward right now. I'm moving forward tonight. Come on, I feel the Holy Spirit here. And if you feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit, you need to stand up because when you do, all of a sudden, I'm telling you, as you stand, you're going to feel a release of the mercy of God over you. I'm not going to bribe you. I'm not going to try to manipulate you. I'm not going to try to talk you into something. This is your chance. 
This is your moment to be set free from shame. This is your moment to move forward in intimacy with the Lord. And if He is dealing with your heart, it's not anybody's job here to try to figure out what's going on in your life. Don't worry about that. But if you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the mercy of God that pounds in your chest, stand up to your feet right now. We're going to wait about 30 more seconds. And then we're going to begin to pray. The worship team's going to worship over us. And I'm going to ask your pastor to come back and to close this thing out. But I'm telling you, 30 seconds and we're going to pray. We're counting down right now, 25 seconds. If you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, this is not some manipulation to try to get you to respond. 20 seconds. If you feel it, you know it. Just get up on your feet right now. 15 seconds. Come on. Respond to the Lord. He's standing with open arms. 10 seconds and we're going to pray. He's standing there wanting to put a new robe on you. 5 seconds. 4, 3, 2, 1. Father, thank you for these who have stood. I thank you for the mercy of God that's being released over them right now. Freedom that's coming to them right now. I thank you that the plans of the enemy are being confused and defeated right now in this place. I thank you, God, that you're taking prison garments off of them and you're putting a new robe around their shoulders. Some of you can even feel that the mercy of God's being wrapped around you right now. It's like the Father's wrapping His arms around you, like He's hugging you right now. It's the mercy of God. You've got to receive His love. You've got to put yourself in a place that you say, God, I, I don't deserve it, but Lord, I receive Your love. I receive Your forgiveness. Now, if you stood, I want you to call it what it is. Call it what it is. I want you to get real with the Lord. Come on, take the fig leaf off and say, God, I'm sorry. I repent because I have sinned against you. And I want you to call it what it is. You don't have to do it out loud, but in your heart, I don't want you to dance around it. If it's pride, call it pride. If it's selfishness, call it selfishness. If it's lust, call it lust. If it's jealousy, if it's fear, whatever it is, God, I repent of blank do that right now where you stand just confess that to him hallelujah I feel the compassion of Jesus here. I feel the mercy of God being poured out in this place thank you Jesus some of you are going to begin to feel the, the inside melting the Bible says the hills melt like wax in the presence of the Lord the Bible says in James that God resists the proud, but He gives enablement and empowerment and grace to the humble. And I'm telling you, God is attracted by your humility. He is attracted to you by your humility. And you're going to begin to feel something melting on the inside. Some of you are going to begin to cry, and it's just tears of freedom. It's tears of joy that are going to come to you right now. As the Lord melts away the shame of the past and the reproach of the past. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Those of you that are standing, I want you now to just lift your hands. Not because you feel anything. Not because of that. Some of you do. I know that you do right now. I want you to lift both of your hands right now. 
And I want you to do that for two things. Number one, I want you to do it as thanksgiving to the Lord of saying, God, I thank you for your mercy. Come on, you just with your own mouth begin to thank him for his mercy. Lord, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for the blood of Jesus that does for me what the blood of thousands of lambs could never do for anybody else. That the blood of lambs for thousands of years could only cover sin. But the blood of a spotless lamb, Jesus, a great high priest, came along. And his blood doesn't cover your sin. His blood cleanses your sin. Thank him for his blood right now. Come on with your hands lifted. Just begin to thank him for his blood. Thank him for his mercy. You lift your hands as a sign of surrender that says, God, I relinquish control to you. It's a new season. I'm made new, God. I receive your love. I'm made new by you, Lord. Made new by you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Father, I pray that old garments would be pushed aside, would be set aside. I pray, God, that we would change our clothes right now. Lord, just speak to people. Show them what that means right now. Show them what that looks like to change their clothes. Now here, listen, this is what I want us to do. I want those of you that are seated right now, I want you to stand to your feet all across this place. Come on, stand to your feet. Now, I want the rest of you all across this place. I want you to lift your hands to the Lord. Come on, all everybody, all across this place. And I want you now to begin to thank Him for His mercy. Begin to thank Him for His blood. Come on, just begin to cry out to Him. Just begin to worship Him in view of the mercy of God. We present ourselves to you. Come on, let's worship Him.
sing that chorus one more time but I need to tell you this really quickly I was addicted to porn and I remember the day that my dad found out I think he already knew right because dads know and I remember he walked down the hall into my bedroom and went right where I had the magazines and the shame that Jay's been talking about that's what washed over me oh snap my dad is going to find my worst secret. And he did. And he said, son, come sit down. And I did. And he looked at me, and this is what he said. I've been where you are. There's a better way. You need to throw these out. And I love you. Listen, the writer of Hebrews says that we have a high priest who has been tempted like we are. Yet without sin, he sympathizes with our weakness, and he is able to save us completely. The shame that just got dealt with, it is no more. It's only up here. It's not here. The cross dealt with that, and it's not in heaven where he sits interceding for you. It's thrown away. He understands you. He paid for you. This song that we're singing right now, this is a relationship song, right? Like even dudes can lean back on somebody's chest when there's a relationship, right? And so I just want us to close this out tonight. We all just lead that song again. I just want us to close. Just close your eyes. Forget about the people next to you. And just you and Jesus right now. Can we just close out the first night of encounter? Just you and Jesus. I want to sit at your feet. I want to drink from the cup in your hand. I want to know this love that overwhelms me and flushes out all of the shame. Come on, church. Maybe just raise your hands to the Lord. Like, I've never even done that before, but tonight you just know, just do it. Just love on Him as He loves on you. Come on, sing that, church. Drink from the cup in your hand. Lay back against you and breathe. Feel your heart beat.
for a second. Let me ask you this question. I'm going to block the light so I can see. If you're here right now and what's going through your head is I'm not, I want you to close your eyes. Don't look at me. What's going through your head is I'm not good enough. Those words, I'm not good enough, went through your head. Even if you thought it was stupid, I'm not good enough. Just raise your hand. You just thought that? Thank you. Anybody else? I'm trying to see you. The train is coming. I'm trying to see Thank you so much. Listen. Father, we pray right now in your name that you just break that. Those of you that raise your hands, can I just set you free? You're not good enough. Jesus was good enough. But you're wanted. That's all that matters. You're wanted by the one who is good enough. And that makes it okay. So, Father, I just pray against that thought before you even wrap this up and walk out the door, God. We're just going to call that what it is. It's a lie that the enemy wants to put on us, even after an amazing encounter with your presence, that he would want to stick that last little dagger in our mind. You're just not good enough. Jesus is good enough. And he said it's finished. And we're wanted by you, and we thank you for that, God. We thank you for what you've done tonight, for how you've healed us in our hearts and our souls, God. What an amazing first night here at Encounter, God. And we thank you for being so, so faithful to us. In your name, Jesus.